0: Good morning, Will.
1: Good morning, Sophie, um, and good morning to all of you. This is a bit of a first. We're on location, guys and gals. We are in the Zoological Society of London. Um, just east of the gorilla encampment, or prison, as we decided it might probably be called, because of the electric vents. And I think we really need a bit of theme music. So, listeners, don't sartanage. May remember this. Uh-huh. <Sings> and so on. That was of course the music from Animal Magic. and... Um, you know, we're not allowed to have TV shows with anthropomorphised animals anymore, but Sophie and I grew up on it and we'd rather miss it.
0: Do you miss it? I do miss it. I can't go around the zoo, and I do go round the zoo a lot without uh, imagining most of the animals have
1: voices and most of them do sound a little bit like Johnny Morris. <laughs> <laughs> In my memory, of course, the voices were marvellously diverse, but I suspect there were kind of variations of about two or three.
0: Yes, most of them kind of went a bit like this.
1: remember <laughs> (laughs) Um, Anyway, so there we are. We are here. This is the third episode of the second series. I'm Will Eaves. I'm a writer. Uh, I'm Sophie Scott, and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. And we look at scientific papers and short extracts of literature and stories and poems and see what the correspondences are between the two in the field of communication and meaning. So pretty broad, really. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and, um, we lack focus. <laughs> we lack focus. And focus, <laughs> interestingly, is the, the subject really of the things we've been looking at um, this week, this month, or from a certain point of view, because we've been looking at brain plasticity and ageing and what it is you recognise and can do as you get older and where there are where there's deterioration degeneration, how does that manifest itself and what might be the reasons for that. So, Sophie, do you want to introduce the, the article?
0: Yes, the the article is a paper trying to specifically address the, the nature of changes in the brain as we learn to do tasks and how that's affected by age. So the thing about the human brain that is probably worth saying at the top is that it does not work out of the box. You're born with most of the brain cells you will ever have, about 85 billion of them. And you can grow new ones, and that's not a you know an impossible thing. But most of them you have at the start, and what so that s-
1: baby crying in the background has already got eighty-five billion. <laughs> yeah, brain they're, cells. they're
0: pretty much most of the ones they ever need, yeah. or they'll ever have. They've got now, and what you get in in infancy and childhood is this kind of explosion. You get initially masses and masses of connections being made between these brain cells, and that's how your brain makes new connections is literally by new connections growing and new ways of the sort of the nerve cells making connections with each other and that also um, happens alongside a process called myelination which is where the long projections the long arms if you like that are connecting brain cells those get these fatty sheaths deposited upon them called myelination and that makes them transmit information much faster so you see this pattern of growth in the brain which is both a growth of connections and if you like aspects of the integrity of those connections and a lot of that is largely in place by the time you are in your early 20s but that doesn't mean to say you can't get further change so one of the things that defines the human brain is the fact that it's incredibly plastic over the duration of your life so the ability to make new connections and for existing connections to be strengthened is something that does not change does not go so you always have the possibility for further modification of this brain and that's why we're really adaptable to circumstances everybody was sort of horrified when we went into lockdown it's still pretty horrific but we've adapted to a lot of the things that we would have once
1: thought were unthinkable and that's because of how our brains work. So just to clarify, there, so that sort of I understand, you're saying there's, there's, on the one hand, there's the kind of structural um, setup of the brain, the neuronal goings on that allow you to to think, make connections, um, develop, and then there is a sort of um, substructural um, thing called myelination, which if, it's not exactly a catalyst, but it's the thing that it's the enabling. Yes. It, 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 it's, it's quite difficult to describe then, isn't it? Because it, they're both structural Depends elements. structural elements. But the second one is... Um, well, yes, it is a bit like a kind of catalyzing component, isn't it? It's the it, thing that makes the main structure work better.
0: Exactly, it makes it work more efficiently. So the classic example is, um, in the human brain, this pattern of myelination. So these, this, this growing of these fatty sheaths along these long axonal projections, so um, you know these, these things that make brain cells different from other, brain, other cells in the body, they've got these long projections. And that's kind of connecting possibly one side of the brain to the other side of the brain. Now, they will work without the myelination, but they work better. When they're myelinated, they are faster. And this process of myelination goes from the back of the brain to the, f- brain to the front. So the last bit of brain to get myelinated is the stuff right at the front, prefrontal cortex. And for example, this has been linked to the fact that um, teenagers who have got perfectly well-working brains in many ways often are quite impulsive in their actions aren't always good at assessing risk. And that's been associated with the fact that their prefrontal cortex is there, but it's not quite as efficiently connected as it will be in a few years' time.
1: So, um... so that's quite interesting. So, you're there. You're saying um, we will get round to the paper, I promise. But you know, that, that, that myelination seems to have something to do with reflexivity in a way.
0: It seems to be implicated in sort of the because it's associated with the speed of how brain areas are working, and your brain works fast. What that means is it can affect the, the way in which your brain, normal brain processes like decision-making may be more reliant, for example, in the teenage brain on or more, or more emotional yeah. kinds of information rather yeah, yeah. than, for want of a better phrase, more rational. So <laughs> I have a teenager at home and when we, were, when we went into lockdown, everything broke immediately. The cooker broke, the toilet broke, everything broke. Um, and one thing, my, my microwave actually blew up, it exploded. And we're all in the flat. So I said to Tom and Hector... Um, Hector's a teenager. I said, D- "Don't touch the microwave." I just turned it on and it exploded. And Hector just walked over and turned it on. And he's never gone near the microwave before, ever in his entire life. So the one time I'd said, "Don't touch the microwave," it just exploded. That was a what? Can okay. <laughs> I more about this? And that's an example of. You know, an adult probably wouldn't do that, and I it's an extreme and a silly example. But actually, that it's just that kind of decision making. It's why we don't let teenagers get tattoos until you know they, we're not thinking things through in the same way that an adult would do, because of this kind of question of how exactly how well everything's working together in your brain.
1: Uh, there's a film about this, isn't there, called Gremlins? I'm exploding quote. Yes. yes. But, which I think is essentially a film about teenagers. I'm not sort of joking. I think it is about <laughs> teenagers. It's because the transition between the soft lovable creature and the creature that's smart and adaptive but reckless yes is it's a coded thing about adolescence because of course the heroes of the story are two adolescents late adolescents yeah. who have to learn how to tame this army of out of control um, aliens Highly recommended listeners Gremlins 80s film
0: I would like someone To remake it um, Focusing in on the mum Because there's that whole scene In the
1: kitchen Is Which just one of the, goes One of the great <laughs> Masterpieces of cinema
0: She's <laughs> like Get out of my kitchen With a
1: knife And, and the microwave
0: I, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see more of her yeah. <laughs> It's
1: also so, good <laughs> So teenagers Because of the, the last bit of Precortical myelination Hasn't quite taken place they um, perhaps don't reflect enough on their behaviour before they act. Who knew? And,
0: <laughs> I, know, I know, I know, it's probably the scales have fallen from your eyes, and it's not like adults always make rational decisions, you know, it's just like a, it's a snapshot, the effect these things yeah. can have.
1: Well, actually, one, one question before we come on the paper, which just building on top of that, which is when life expectancy was lower, I mean, let's, let's take it back a long way back into sort of um, the, um, maybe the you know, Neolithic or even earlier, in the um, Paleocene. Holocene, um, when you you know you were predated upon, um, maybe maximum life expectancy was going to be what sort of twenty, early twenties, late twenties. Um, what effect does that ha- does that have an effect on the, as it were, the survival of the species? If most of the members of a society are getting killed off before they've really learnt to reflect.
0: If you go back far enough in human history, what you find is we lived the four, three school years in ten. That's what we've evolved to do. And the thing that really brought life expectancy down for humans was agrarian and then industrialisation. Right. And that made us die very young. Right. Um, and so if you are a hunter-gatherer, which is the, that's what humans evolved to live in, the thing you are most likely to die of after old age is another hunter-gatherer. Mm. Because they're quite murderous, but you don't get disease.
1: No, because you don't
0: live with your animals, and if the rest of the world is running fine, then you don't have a problem getting food. Yeah. So you do get this massive dip in life expectancy, but it's not. That's not an evolutionary aspect. Okay. That's yeah, a that's a situational,
1: situational thing. Situational. Yeah. 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 And also, there's a there's a there's a migratory part of that, isn't mm. it? Because Certainly, when we moved north, I think there was also a dip.
0: Yes, you, um, yeah.
1: In life I'm expectancy, sure. because of um, climate change. Yeah, coping, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, yeah coping yeah, with these yeah, things yeah. and the climate did change the a and lot around did us. Better
1: yeah, because they had air. So this paper is about plasticity in the brain, but we're, it's looking at the the other age, end of the age um, spectrum. It's looking at um, white matter plasticity in um, the older brain.
0: And the idea here is what that because we don't have um, a, we don't lose the ability to have plasticity in the brain. What they're asking is how does this happen in the older brain? Because your brain does change as you get older. Some things are you know the the brain does not necessarily always work as well and what they're addressing here is what's underpinning the change in the brain because there will be change in the brain old people can learn to do new things so what's actually underpinning this and they're going in with functional magnetic resonance imaging and there are a number of different things you can pick up with this you can pick up like the size of the activation associated with doing a task you can pick up or measure the size of the brain areas so just an anatomical issue associated with learning a task and Over a long time scale, you you can pick up brain areas that change in size. You get bigger because of more connections when you get skilled at doing something. Or, and that's what they're looking at here, is there anything to do with these white matter tracts, these long axonal projections? And what they're measuring here is something terrifying called functional anisotropy. What that basically is, is using the MRI machine to get an index of how efficiently the white matter tracts are working. And to cut a very long story short, what they do is they train young people and old people on a what sounds a stunningly boring visual perception task, where they have to sort of discriminate the orientation of target lines on a complicated background. There's
1: letters against it. There's letter T and L against different, different, differently arranged oblique lines. So
0: then you're sort of when they and sort of are they what angle are they kind of oriented? And people get better at this task, whether or not they're young or old. And what they are asking, and they scan people before and after their training, and then they ask which brain areas have changed. And they're specifically looking within visual cortex, because visual cortex is very hierarchically organised. You get this, the language they use here is V1, V2, V3. That means visual cortex, primary visual cortex, secondary visual cortex, tertiary visual cortex visual cortex and that's defined in terms of where the projections are coming into the brain that's primary visual cortex that's where you get input from the back of the eye and a bit of subcortical processing and that projects out to secondary and then out to third visual cortical fields. so you it, it really is a sort of hierarchical processing and the further you get into this hierarchy the more specialized you'll find in, in the brain cells that start to be interested in letters or faces or that kind of thing um, So they're not looking at the cortical bits, the actual sort of grey matter, the bits of the brain that's doing the computation. They're looking underneath it at the white matter. And what they find is in the older brains, you get a greater change in the functional anisotropy of the white matter, these axonal projections beneath these visual cortical fields associated with the training. And you don't see that in the brains of the younger people.
1: It's fascinating. Can I just clear up exactly where these white matter projections are for someone who's kind of anatomically no, 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 no. It's an obvious, dim about yes. this? Uh, in, in relation, as it were, to surface and depth in yes. the brain and where we are, where we're looking. So um,
0: you'll often hear uh, the surface of the brain referred to as the cortex, and that just means bark, and it yeah. means the outside of the brain. And... What we actually normally mean by that is this mantle of grey matter that's on the surface of the brain. Yeah. And the grey matter is where the cell bodies of the brain cells live. And then white matter is connecting each one of those cell bodies, or many of them, to other parts of the brain. So it's as if you've got, you can almost think like a mushroom's got a yeah. cap and then a stalk. The brain cells are made of this cell body and then a stalk. And the white matter is made up of all these stalks together. yeah. So yeah. It's called white matter because it looks white on dissection because it's sheathed in fat and the fat looks white. Whereas the gray areas are actually a pinkish gray when the brain's alive, yeah. but they're not covered in myelin so they, don't, they look different, it's visually different. So white matter, gray matter just means where the cell bodies are and where the long projections are.
1: And so the finding of this paper, is that, um, and it's contrary to some, it's it's contrary to a lot of other experience and experiment in um, um, brain activity and plasticity in older people because it it suggests there's this increase in white matter plasticity rather than a reduction uh, in plasticity elsewhere. Um, I mean, the sobering part of it and interesting part of it is that... uh, on the face of it, you might think, "Oh, well, that's great!" You know, um, thumbs up for older people—they they have you know, improved um, subcortical white matter plasticity. But in fact, of course, it—and they—the question is left open as to why any of this is actually taking place. They're, they're quite careful, the, the mm. authors of this paper. The authors being Yuku, Yotsumoto, hung Chang, Rooney et al. Um, they don't quite know why this is taking place. But it may be, of course, because there's been a reduction in plasticity elsewhere. So rather than it being um, an inherently better thing to do with um, Um, axonal projections at this stage of life, it's actually compensatory.
0: Exactly. And so the implication could be that there's something... The vast majority of brain plasticity studies look at the formation of Dendrites, which are the connections between brain cells and other brain cells, or the existing or strengthening of connections that already exist between brain cells. And that's what underlies a lot of brain plasticity. And as you say, one of the implications here is that they get better at the task, but they're not getting it better at the task because the brain is making more connections, that the brain areas they've already got are able to make more efficient contact with other brain areas via these these main routes. So... um, I had a lot of questions about how this could work because I don't know what... If you think about what plasticity means in this context, when you measure the functional anisotropy, what you're actually measuring is how water molecules are moving along these long white matter tracts. And when... If you imagine water moving around a... Water molecules moving around in a glass of water where there's no barrier, there will be complete functional anisotropy because they mm. can move everywhere and the more they get constrained in these tubes of these long projections of these fatty sheets the more they can only move along those sheets so they get very very limited in their movement so that does suggest that something is happening in terms of the functional integrity mm. of the white matter tract but I don't what I, I can't completely understand is how, how could that happen? What does that mean? Does it mean that the white matter tracks were not well organised before this? But people were doing things. So, what I, I you know, I, I kind of I, I would like to know more about what has brought about that change. Because we have a pretty good understanding of the making and strengthening of dendritic connections. That's a, and it's
1: a different thing. Perhaps these white matter projections are Some, simply, <laughs> to, to put it bluntly, Longer lived. Maybe they have a sort of perdurable quality yeah. that um, the other connections in the brain d- don't have, so that at the yeah. point where Plasticity reduces elsewhere they can they can take over presumably it's not yeah. the same it's not the same kind of compensation maneuver as you would find in stroke victims who lose processing and functionality in one part of the brain and then another part takes over yeah. for example yeah. um, feats of recognition or um, motor dexterity
0: yes and that's our, our main understanding of of adaptation in damaged brains is exactly this, that you get some functional reorganisation around the stroke. And sometimes the most unlikely things can help us. There's quite good evidence that if somebody's had a stroke and it's given them say, a problem with their right arm, the brain area that would control their right arm has been compromised by the stroke and they're struggling to move their arm. All the best evidence we have is that you have to strap up the good arm and not let them use so they've got a left arm that works and they'll want to use that don't let them use it strap it up so they cannot use it and force them to use the arm that is being compromised by the brain damage very because if you don't the left brain the brain area that's controlling the left arm will just overwhelm everything and stop recovery from happening
1: it's so, very interesting. yes it is
0: isn't, isn't it, it? yes yeah, so you've got two I kinds mean, of plasticity ge- duking it out there basically
1: and not wanting to make two sort of we pat a leap to the uh, an apparently unrelated aesthetic realm, but I mean it is also the case, I think when you are building a story or a narrative or any, any kind of if we think of stories as some kind of sort of prosthetic device for containing information, that constraints actually help mm. the arrangement of the information and help the transmission of yeah. narrative. And without constraint, you run into trouble. People know, you know difficulty, you know, uh, making sense of things mm. and the constraint may be at one level grammatically it may be to do with language but it may also be to do with form um, and, and it, actually that relationship there that we've just lit on sort of extemporising between um, one set of inherent constraints in language uh, syntax, grammar and um, the secondary application of form verse, um, genre, medium that sort of thing has a kind of it seems to me a relationship to the relationship between you know structure and substructure in the brain, between um, the one kind of cortical processing and myelination that you mentioned at the start. maybe maybe that's an extravagant comparison. I don't know.
0: It's a certainly very interesting one because one of the things that we, I think we struggle with in neuroscience is actually conceptualising what the constraints are on processing in the brain and that's, I don't think we are good at handling that. Sometimes we make it about the senses, sometimes we make it about the, the limits of plasticity and growth and I don't think we have a good language for it. I don't think we've dealt with it. Whereas in fact, I think if we could describe the limits of what we're dealing with because at one level the brain is like this supercomputer unmatched in nature for its complexity but it is still operating with constraints so what actually are those and Mm. would that that would help i think the stories that we tell
1: about it yeah well i think that's 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 still that's part of the reason you know we're here and doing this doing this podcast is precisely the the understanding there is there is the sort of Obvious physical constraint of where the brain is and w- what it consists of at the level of matter, and then there is its um, there is its its networking connectiveness with all the other brains around us, which is much more difficult to um, describe, let alone measure. Mm-hmm. Before we come on to the, the story, which uh, actually relates very directly to this business of aging and plasticity, I want to introduce the obvious topic of dementia and, and brain decay. Um, you know, we're <laughs> of interest to us all. Sophie <laughs> yes. and I are both, you know, in our early 50s. And, um, and my, I have a parent who, who died of um, uh, Alzheimer's. And the, I just want to ask a question about what happens to white matter in the um, degenerating human brain, because my understanding is that this subcortical arrangement of white matter then proceeds to mat over the surface, and actually when we've had quite a, when people have done autopsies of. Um, a, a demented person's brain you find that there's a strangulation that, that the fatty, the white fatty material which is supposed to be assisting us through most mm. of our lives then becomes a sort of hindrance well, and, and overgrows
0: or... It looks like it's overgrown but it's basically because the dementia is picking off those cell bodies right. so that could be happening in a very global way, you might get atrophy all over the surface of the brain or it could be incredibly focal so um, Terry Pratchett described, the f- he had a very sort of visual dementia. It affected the visual areas of his brain first. And he was approaching a rotating door and he could not work out what yeah. to do. The visual information was utterly failing him. And that was the sort of sign that things were going wrong. But it's, it could also be subcortical, so in something like Parkinson's disease, it's tiny little nuclei in the substantia nigra that are being picked off, but it's the cell bodies that are going. So you are left with these tracts, these white matter tracts, but they're connecting nothing.
1: Yes, it's a connectivity problem, really, isn't it? Because Mm. also in multi-infarct dementia, which is actually not what my mother had, but that's where you have multiple tiny strokes, and you sort of kill off discrete portions. of. I mean, relatively speaking, quite large areas, but but they're not obviously connected, and, and Absolutely, because and you... the brain is old, it can't, it can't compensate in the way that it might have done if it was an earlier, you know, if age. Well,
0: sort of, well, often you're by the 30s. time somebody with multi-infarct dementia is symptomatic, they have had many little strokes, yeah. and the brain has been coping. So the brain's been reorganising around these little strokes, and then. You get, the, you get this exactly the same thing in Parkinson's disease. By the time someone becomes symptomatic with Parkinson's disease, they've actually had a loss of tissue structure that the brain has been compensating around until they're down to about 10%, and that's
1: when the brain can't compensate anymore, and you start to get symptoms. So, well, this is—I mean, the, it's, a, it's a huge problem, isn't it, with diagnosis? Yeah. You can tell this when you go to the doctor. Begin going to the doctor at our age for things that don't quite <laughs> put themselves right, and it's exactly that, isn't it? You, you know, on the one hand, you're saying something very sensible. I want to catch before it gets um, yeah. very obvious and very bad. But on the other hand, until it gets obvious and bad, you know, they're not that interested because they'd be testing everyone. So there's actually an, an economic problem.
0: Uh, exactly, and mm-hmm. also, certainly for dementia, I mean, whisper it, but even if you diagnose it, there's nothing we can do. No,
1: exactly. So
0: yeah. the biggest, um, you know... We're starting to come to a bit of a reckoning in neuroscience that the work for the last, you know, 10, 15 years or so, which has been on, like, these formation... You you get these plaques and tangles in the brains of people, the the brain cells uh, of people with Alzheimer's, and there's a protein in the brain called tau protein which has been strongly implicated in this. So there's been all this push to somehow target the production of tau proteins, and if you can stop that from happening, do you halt the progression of the disease? And you don't. It does nothing and you know what we do know this is going to be so boring you're going to start crying with boredom but what we do know is and we know this again we learned this quite a long time ago with neuroscience but there are things that do help but they help preemptively yeah and it's things like exercise you know um it's one of the best things you can do for your brain the thing that will promote the growth of new neurons is exercise so being active actually going out into the world is the single
1: best thing you can do for your brain. I learned this from, a, from my GP friend, who said, really, it, 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 the general practice ought to be called good practice. The, the, good, the good practice things like taking exercise and sort of not having a terrible diet, really. It's, it's the best thing you can do for yeah. a whole range of things. I know this is sort of... It's, it's, it's obvious. But, but one of the problems is the more, the more uh, technologically specific and expert we become... As a, as a thinking culture, the, the greater the temptation uh, among researchers, I think, to feel that there is a specific technical answer to things which actually are insoluble. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the, the story, uh, which is about um, a woman who has dementia and goes to live in a care home it's called The Bear Came Over the Mountain and it's by the great, and I don't use that adjective lightly Alice Munro um, and it first appeared in The New Yorker uh, in 1999 and has been reprinted a couple of times and made into a film with Julie Christie as well and it's, it's a wonderfully uh, it's, a, it's a wonderfully tender but also direct story not just about deterioration but about adaptation and specifically it's not really about the adaptation of the person suffering from the disease it's about the adaptation of her husband so the two main characters are Grant, who's a university academic um, interested in Icelandic narrative, so alarmingly a bit like me Um, (laughs) and, um, and his wife Fiona who Displays the usual symptoms of gradual deterioration, having to label everything, um, then getting lost, ringing from town, not knowing where she is. Uh, uh, those symptoms um, are dealt with very, very swiftly and sketchily. It's not, um, she's an extremely unsentimental writer. Um, it, it's not so much the sort of disease, Quay disease. That she's interested in, she's interested in really what happens to social grouping. Mm. Um, that's that's what's behind all her stories. It's how people conform and adapt to um, irreversible you know, changes in circumstances. And here, the lovely thing is that Fiona goes into Meadow Lake, a nursing home, um, and there she meets. Um, Aubrey who is there on respite care and Aubrey is someone she knew before she knew Grant her husband and it is clear to Grant when he visits for the first time in 30 days because he has to have 30 days away from her in order for her to get used to her surroundings it's clear that when he visits that she has actually established some new relationship, she is the one who has found a new stroke old partner in Aubrey And Grant, um, far from being missed, has, in a sense, been replaced. Mm. He is, if you like, he has become... um, Well, Aubrey has become the sort of white matter plasticity replacement for um, the grey matter uh, provided by Grant. And there's a further moral irony in all this, which is that Grant... Um, it's sort of set in the 70s and 80s, this story. Grant is someone who never quite allowed himself to see that he was really a philanderer and that he'd had several other affairs. And he and he excused. It's, he, it's very cleverly mm-hmm. done in the story. There's no judgment is handed down, but partly because it's what every other sort of man in the 70s and academia was doing. He sees his... Um, his adulteries and his other relationships as misdemeanours that are normalised by, you know, the environment and what other people are doing. Uh, and there's a strong sense that whether or not Fiona was aware of it, she simply bought into it because of the times, because mm. of the sort of the, the permissive moment, if you like. And um, it's understandable from both points of view. But But what's fascinating about the story... Is, and I think this is a profound psychological truth, is that the person who isn't being the adulterer is often the person who's actually in power in the relationship and that sometimes the person who, who seeks other stimulus is the person of manifest insecurity. And really, this, the second act in their lives is, picks up on this because Grant has to learn... He is the person who has to learn something new mm. when his wife begins to present with dementia because he has to learn selflessness and he has to allow her this new relationship, mm. which is actually a relationship from before him. And he has to sort of delete himself from their marriage in order to care properly for her. It's incredibly powerful. Yeah, um, and, and it's about tolerance and regret uh, and contrition, yeah. I think. But it's done in a way that's entirely unexpected. You sort of don't, you, you don't quite see any of it coming. The, the main structurally, the brilliant thing in the story is when Grant goes to see Aubrey's wife, who is still alive... And who is actually his full-time carer. He was only in the home on respite. He goes back to live with Marion. Grant goes to see Marion. And you really don't see this coming in the story. He asks Marion if Aubrey can go back to visit Fiona. Mm. Because Grant knows it will be good for Fiona. Mm. And it's terribly upsetting. Because, of course, it involves a complete... Um, Total self-abnegation, total sort of—it's it, not quite right to say that it's a, it's a selfless gesture, but he just recognises his secondariness
0: Yeah, it felt like a very real story about love, like what you would actually do, yeah, what totally. you would recognise you had to do, and what you—and I think actually, not to be disrespectful to the original paper we were talking about, but one of the things that we miss completely in these studies where we teach people to recognise letters at different orientations against different complicated backgrounds. They pass as tasks that people people will learn to do and people get better at but they don't care about them and I think one of the things that that came through in the story and actually drives most of the stuff that does lead us to change throughout our lives into old age is the stuff we care about or the stuff we want or getting, you know, getting some sense of reward or correctness from doing it. We do things as we like to. We don't just set out, that I want to change my brain, I'm going to learn to do a new thing about which I don't mind. And sometimes you might learn to find it interesting because you're doing it. But I thought this is a very good example of his... He, it's because he cares. That's why
1: this is happening. He, yeah, I mean, he, I think I mean, that's, he's not just walking away. That's true, and I think there's a... But it's also something that he, he comes to understand. Yes. He comes to care. Because it's a quite important part of the story is that they sort of get married almost by accident as young people. Um, she sort of suggests it as a joke one day and he thinks, why not? And they go along yeah. with it. and they're married for a very long time. But there is the sense that they ha- he has to grow to love her and understand her. It's mm. not something that he wants to begin with, particularly. Yeah. I mean, it's an option that's presented him as a young person with a number of options, he takes it. Yeah. But there's not actually, if you like, all that much love involved in it. That comes later. And, oh. and I think it's, this is still an interesting kind of, it's still an uncommon story to find someone writing. Yes, you yes. Because, because the sort of the, the trajectory so often seems to be, you know, love at the outset and then the trial of dealing with, you know, the way love is tested and wanes and becomes familiarity and perhaps something else. And this story is really quite the other way around. Mm. In a way, it's about the plasticity of affection. Yeah. And, and, how it, and how it can surprise you even very late on in life. And
0: I, that felt very human to me. It felt very real. I think we have... Um... <laughs> this always upsets people, but there's quite good evidence that... Um... Our conception of romantic love that we have in the West is a culture-specific emotion. You don't find it in all cultures. Like, you know, India, that's not... It's not why you get married. don't get married. You know, we want to have a long-term relationship with someone we feel is the, the one... And actually that's not something that kind of emotional expression is not something you find everywhere.: yeah,
1: don't really, It's not really Japanese um, they? It? No. It's
0: very, very limited really to us. And one of the things that's interesting, however, is that love is not. And whatever you want to define, but a much more general kind of love that would be largely it might feel different, have a different time case, but just caring for and feeling the need for a connection with another person. There's not that much difference between a love for a parent, love for a child, or a lo- an enduring love for a partner. And because of our story tends to be often written around as sort of something you say, romantic love at the start that might then change. This is, I think, getting to something more real about that kind of... Whatever that emotion is, that is some kind of like a background radiation love.
1: Well, that's a very interesting. In, in fact, Munro talks about this kind of... Um you know, peripheral sense, she, she, she physicalizes that sort of feeling about caring and anticipation. She talks about it very well in this story. So I'm just going to read a little bit. On the morning of the day when he was to go back to Meadow Lake for the first visit, Grant woke early. He was full of a solemn tingling, as in the old days, on the morning of his first planned meeting with a new woman. The feeling was not precisely sexual. Later, when the meetings had become routine, that was all it was. There was an expectation of discovery, almost a spiritual expansion. Also timidity, humility, alarm. It seems to be an almost perfect paragraph that, mm. about about... Um, about the enfoldedness of emotions in caring. Mm. Um, And and the presence of guilt, too, although she's very careful never to use the word guilt. Yeah. Um, It doesn't crop up very much in in Monroe because it's too much of a... um, It's too much of a red rag, really. It's not not a subtle enough descriptor. Um, There's another thing I just wanted to um, read but it gives you an idea of how well she treats um, the whole business of reading people with dementia and what it is they mean. Um, So he sees his wife Fiona playing bridge with Aubrey and some other inmates. He's never taken any interest in any of this stuff before, but there she is, Um, And she's helping Aubrey choose his cards. And she's not even hugely aware, I think, of whether her husband is her husband. And that's that's something that's crucial at the very end of the story. Grant said... He's talking to the nurse. Grant said, does she even know who I am? He could not decide. She could have been playing a joke. It would not be unlike her. She had given herself away by that little pretense at the end talking to him as if she thought perhaps he was a new resident if it was a pretense you know, here comes to the, 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 the old thing of whether we can tell from people's behaviour what it is they actually mean Yeah. but of course this is something that you have very powerfully and movingly with a demented person they will reproduce habits of speech and habits of gesture and behaviour and you know in communicating with them or trying to communicate with them, they are now, they're not perhaps completely empties of meaning, but they're vestigial. Mm. Uh, and you cannot take them at face value in the way that you did when the person was well. Mm. The question then arises, what is it inherently in the action that you responded to to begin with? And of course, that's very mystifying. It's very, very hard to pin down. What is it that that they're remembering? But but the fascinating thing is that even as you feel yourself, you know, my mother remembered various hymns and I could sort of sing them with her and and she would sort of make little gestures of the hand and and I'd I'd recognise them as being essentially her. I could see that she was rather like Fiona. She was able to develop new relationships with people in the home using some of those things. But they would mean, they were the same gestures, they were the same tunes. They had little kind of hymns sing-along, you know, on Friday Mm. afternoons. But they meant something completely different now to what they meant when I was growing up. And yet the behaviour is quite the same.
0: You're absolutely right. And it's one of the things that feels like it's, it's going wrong for you as much as it's going wrong for them. It's very hard to be neutral about it and say objectively well this is different because you don't I mean it's not unusual for people's first reaction to be quite irritated like be normal be you, I'm not, I know this isn't what it is and there's something, what it should be and there's something and I'm going to sound like, I'm explaining this very badly, and the reason for this is I'm explaining it very badly. <laughs> but I think that well, there's almost like this Freudian notion that we've kind of lost a lot in cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience, whereby the important people in your life are part of what's in your head. And I do think there's something meaningful to that, like, and I don't mean that in terms of some sort of Freudian organization of the ego, but some, like, the way the edges of the constraints, if you like, on how you're your conception of yourself and your world works, they're very important structures within that. So if they go wrong or they die on you, there's suddenly these very unpleasant edges where there's nothing there and there should be something there. Mm. There's something stable that keeps you... Mm. Like you know, something you know where it is. But as you like... say,
1: it might not distress the person actually suffering from that at all. And, so yeah, exactly. The important part is that Fiona in this story is not <laughs> is not disturbed by no. what's happening to her. No, you
0: know, it's, it's other people. It's Monroe actually strong. says,
1: yeah. what well, Grant says, he got the impression that she would be embarrassed by these questions. Embarrassed not for herself, but for him. Yeah. It just bears out what you've been saying. But it's, uh, the, the culmination of that of course is this, this marvellous thing at the end of the story where The sense of who is being, um, who has been replaced, who has, who is still in a relationship with Fiona um, is very, very beautifully and mysteriously brought to a point. He goes to see Fiona once more in the home. And this time he has gone back with Aubrey in tow so he has brought her what who he feels Fiona needs. Fiona I've brought a surprise for you do you remember Aubrey? She stared at Grant for a moment as if waves of wind had come beating into her face into her face into her head pulling everything to rags all rags and loose threads. Names elude me she said harshly. Then the look passed away, as she retrieved, with an effort, some bantering grace. She set the book down carefully, and stood up and lifted her arms to put them around him. Her skin, or her breath, gave off a a faint new smell, a smell that seemed to Grant, like green stems in rank water. ''I'm happy to see you,'' she said, both sweetly and formally. She pinched his earlobes hard. ''You could have just driven away,'' she said, "'just driven away without a care in the world "'and forsook me, forsooken me, forsaken. "'He kept his face against her white hair, "'her pink scalp, her sweetly-shaped skull. "'He said, not a chance.'" And the reason it seems to me such a brilliant and moving and upsetting end is that she's very, very, very careful with her pronouns and her names in that last section. You don't actually know whether the he is Grant or Aubrey. Yeah. And that's extremely important. Yeah. It's not a mistake, it's a precise very brilliant calculation mm. it's not, it doesn't get as far as being a, a substitution, you can't prove it anywhere, Aubrey is either in the background or he's the person she's enfolding you just don't quite know yeah. and that last blast of kind of horror stroke recognition on her face the, the wind that's turning everything to rags and loose threads we don't know really who she's looking at
0: Yeah. yes
1: it's, I mean, she's, she's, she's an... Ab- I think she's a sort of a master, yeah. uh, Alice Munro. And um, she's still alive. Uh, perhaps, you know, her, perhaps her, her best work is, is now in the past. She's in her mid-80s. And the last collection was called Dear Life. And um, perhaps, perhaps one might say it wasn't written at the kind of level of pressure that um, this story, for example, was but no matter. Mm. There are so many collections of such wonderful stories. Um, And uh, this is one of the best. Um, The other one, interesting, that, that she's very, very good on the big change in a relationship that is half foreseen and half happenstance. So here it's, we know someone's got dementia, they go into a home, and then, as it were, the camera sort of does a sort of reverse pivot and the story becomes about Grant's adaptation mm. um, and Marion um, Aubrey's wife becomes the sort of, you know, the, the, the crucial narrative, um, agent of change. Uh, and in another wonderful story called um, Hateship, Loveship, Friendship, Courtship, Marriage, I think that's right, um, it's a story about a woman who falls in love with a man she barely knows by letters, that, um, a correspondence that she has written. What she doesn't know is that the whole thing is a practical joke and that her side of the correspondence is real, but the side that appears to be coming from this man that she met once, who now lives out in the back of beyond in Canada, um, many hours away, uh, days away, is in fact being written by her devious um, charge, sort of the, the daughter she looks after in the household for which she's the sort of maid of all works. And this clever young girl has got together with an impressionable friend and they've made up these letters from this person that um, Johanna, the, the protagonist, knew once. And Johanna falls in love with them, she doesn't know it's all made up. And she decides to sell all her worldly goods and get a train ticket out to where this boat lives. This boat, I mean, really happy, you know, knowing nothing about her. She turns up and she finds him in a flop house and he's very ill. And it works anyway. It's a, it's a marvellous kind of late reversal. Yeah. And then you're cut out of the story. You don't really know how it works. Yeah. You don't even really know if she realises... That um, she's been strung along, yeah, none of that matters, yeah, because the actual practical business of caring for someone is the thing that makes it come right. Mm. It's an extraordinary story, um, and so that's about a kind of social plasticity, yeah. want to say anything at this point about what we witnessed on the way to making this recording which is the <laughs> macaques grooming each other
0: yes it was just glorious the crested macaques. Yeah. crested macaques
1: because caring is grooming is it not
0: But it's really odd for if you look at primates the main way primates make and maintain social bonds and know their place in the social hierarchy and what they spend their time doing when they're not doing everything else they need to do to stay alive, like eating and sleeping and eluding predators, is they groom each other. It's an incredibly important behaviour and it's the absolute... It's, Robin Dunbar's argued that's what we've replaced with language. But that kind of physical rule of who you will let touch you, who would let you touch them, where you would touch them, what you would do for them, what it would mean is still kind of underlies a lot of our behavior. So in intense emotional situations, we are more likely to not talk about it and become physical in our actions. And that's because, you know, we've moved past the point where language is enough and we want to go down to this.
1: Well, language operates over distance.
0: Language has many advantages, but if you were very, very angry or very, very frightened or very, very attracted to someone, there would be a point after which saying, well, I'm finding this very amusing would not be enough. You would want to laugh or you'd want to have the physical contact. So then that's effectively when we just, there's no difference whatsoever between us and other apes and primates at that point. So it's, it's interesting... There are many advantages to language. You can have many more contacts with people. It doesn't take as long. It takes ages for if you imagine every, if, you, if for everybody you would say hello to on your way to work or something, you have to sit down and groom. <laughs> you wouldn't, you know. Well, it would you can ages do, you can them. do
1: something when the body isn't present. I exactly, mean, a, exactly. All sorts
0: of it, all know. sorts of advantages, and it may well it enables us to just have bigger social groups, which has been very important to humans. But it's it's taken out a lot of for want of a better phrase, enjoyable physical contact. Yeah. And like Just yes. the focus, the yeah. focus with which the grooming macaque was going through the, the spine of this other macaque. It was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. It is beautiful.
1: I mean, it struck me also that, what, that, that one of the things that's very important about that kind of physical pleasure, you know, both presumably for macaques, but also for humans, is the idea that it can be resisted. That you, don't, that you don't necessarily have to accept if you don't want it, mm. And just to bring it back to the story, and maybe we can end on this, don't want it to be too, too much of a downbeat note, but it's an interesting thing, is that one of the difficult things for people who've lost language and who are very, very dependent in those kind of care situations is that they can't meaningfully resist being touched. Yeah. They can't say no. Yeah. And I think that's very, very hard. So one of the things you have to learn as a carer is when not, as it's- it were to yeah. offer grooming attention when not to be too physically present. Yeah. Because it's equally important yeah. for humans to feel that they have privacy, for want of a better word. Yes. And they, they, they have a kind of physical integrity that isn't always available.
0: And you have control over it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah definitely. Well, that's,
1: it's fascinating. And um, to the listeners who've borne with us, um, I hope you've enjoyed the... Uh, commentary of the younger generation in the background <laughs> there's
0: a gentleman without any trousers on behind you he yeah. <laughs> was oh, about three I, and a half, I've I think, missed out
1: was... Oh I thought it was going to be good a... no it was yeah. much less uh,
0: yeah. alarming than that but it, was... <laughs> <laughs> and it, was, it was at the heart of some of the noise
1: <laughs> well I've been Will Eaves.
0: I've been Sophie Scott
1: we've enjoyed this very much we hope you have too and we will see you next time
0: thank you very much bye bye